Hello and welcome to the final episode in the third series of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. We've heard from amazing guests on topic ranging from the future of care, both child and elderly, to uncovering the hidden world of NFTs, to discussing how entire technology fields are dedicated to improving women's health. Another emerging trend of this series has been the rise of social enterprises. Whilst potentially at risk of very much being a buzzword, it has struck me just how many modern startups come with a mission and a passion to improve lives and the planet. And someone who speaks about this with more passion than anyone else is Tessa Clark, the CEO and co-founder of the sharing app Olio. Initially created to reduce food waste by allowing unwanted food to be shared with neighbours near you, the app has grown far bigger than just food. You are now able to share and receive food and non-food items alike, as well as lend or borrow household items. They've recently introduced a marketplace to buy and sell homemade items from members of the community. Since the pandemic, they have grown to 5 million users, sharing over 34 million portions of food and saving over 9 billion litres of water. And that's just the consumer side. Businesses can work with Olio to distribute leftover goods throughout communities and partnerships with pret and even one of the UK's largest companies, Tesco, have allowed them to reach net zero faster. In September of this year, Olio announced a 43 million Series B round, making the founders Tessa and Sasha the most heavily backed female founding team in the whole of the United Kingdom. This series partners, Octopus, have a mission to invest in the ideas, industries and people that will change the world. So it comes as no surprise that Olio is an Octopus portfolio company, having attracted their attention and invested as part of their Series A round back in 2018. With a focus on true sustainability, education and action, I couldn't think of a better company to sign off our third series before we return in 2022. We will be back next week for a shorter episode where we'll touch on some of our plans for the future. But as ever, thank you for listening and making this show what it is about. Word of mouth is everything in the audio world. So if you enjoy this episode or any from this series, please do send us to a friend or rate us on the iTunes app as that makes such a big difference. Or drop us a line with what you'd like to see more of at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. Tessa, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Great to be with you. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start by asking, where did the name Olio come from? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> um, so Sasha and I, well, we had a decision to take right at the very beginning, which is, do we go for something that describes, you know, does what it says on the tin, like the Food Exchange Network, or do we go for something else that we can to really create, build a brand around? And thankfully, we decided to go for the latter. And Olio actually means a miscellaneous collection of things, which if you look on the app, that is indeed what you will see. Uh, it's also is the name for a traditional Mediterranean stew and stew is used 
to prevent uh, food waste, which is obviously what Olio exists to do. And we really, though, kind of chose the word because we loved the symmetry of the two O's, which we felt were really kind of symbolic of community, sharing, circular economy, the planet. Uh, and finally, we felt like it was a really elegant, beautiful word that we really liked. And we were really clear from day one that Olio could not risk being seen as a bunch of crazy tree-hugging hippies. So we wanted something that sounded a little bit aspirational. Well, it certainly achieves that. And the the circles is something that I hadn't Im- imagined because talk us through that kind of innovators dilemma that you probably had at one stage early on. You set it up as a food exchange. It was clearly going very yeah. successful, but you decided pretty quickly to kind of expand into into other markets we did so um the very first expansion that we did actually was moving from connecting neighbors to share food so a pure sort of p2p proposition and into uh, working with local businesses and that was because from the very early days we hit upon a massive conundrum which was that our early adopters who absolutely loved olio they hated food waste and as a result they had no food to share And we had sort of somewhat naively uh, hoped that perhaps local bakeries, cafes and delis would use Olio to give away food themselves. And we quickly discovered that they did not have nearly enough time to be messing around with an app, messaging members of the community and parceling out food in different portions. And so they too did not share any food on the app. So in the very early days, we were a food sharing app with no food, which I'm sure you'll agree is pretty (laughs) useless. So how we sort of solved for that conundrum was we said, well, why don't we take the people who have lots of time and no food waste and match them up with businesses that have lots of food waste and no time? And that was the genesis of what is now today our Food Waste Heroes program. We have 35,000 trained volunteers who are members of our community who we recruit in the app. We match them online with their local supermarket or cafe or corporate canteen or whatever it might be. And then on their allotted time and day, they pop out the home across the road. They collect all of the unsold food from that business. They take it home. They add it to the app. Within minutes, the neighbors are requesting it. And minutes later, they're popping around and picking it up. And so that takes that food from having been considered a waste stream in the store to instead, one to two hours later, fully redistributed into multiple homes in the local community. So that was our first sort of, I guess, expansion of what earlier was and how it worked beyond our original ambition. And half of the food that is put up now is taken within sort of 21 minutes, I was reading earlier. I mean, that's it how is, quickly yes. it goes. It, it, exactly. And, and that um, segues perfectly into kind of the second half of my answer to your question. So from day one, we realised we were building a two-sided marketplace and everybody talks about that sort of chicken and egg problem and which comes first and which is most important, supply or demand. We learned from day one that this is a supply-driven marketplace, that there is no shortage of people who want free stuff. And so as founders, we've just been obsessing about how we can get more supply into our marketplace to really get it kick-started. So the Food Waste Heroes program was a really effective way of doing that. And so too was extending out to allow our community to give away non-food listings as well. And actually they started doing that themselves very early on. I can remember in the early days, you'd sort of browse all this food listing and then and then you'd suddenly see a shower head and you'd <laughs> scroll down a bit more and there was some like vanished sort of laundry cleaner or something. And I was having to, in the early days, manually delete all of those listings. And I very quickly realized that that was not at all scalable. And also why are we fighting this? Actually, we hate waste of any variety. And where would you 
give away a free shower head. You know, there wasn't anywhere, wasn't a natural home for those sorts of things either. So that led us to expand Olio from being just food to also uh, other household items as well. And talk us through the pandemic part of the journey as well, because that was, you know, again, one of one of the success stories of the pandemic. You know, you sort of, I believe, went from 1 million to sort of 5 million customers, um, you know, in the space of just a, a few weeks almost. Yes. So the pandemic, uh, as for everybody, was a pretty hair-raising experience. When the first lockdown was announced, it was deeply unclear whether a neighbor-to-neighbor food sharing app could continue to exist and could continue to operate. But Sasha, my co-founder and I, we did a couple of things. The first thing we did was listen to our community and our community made it extremely clear that actually we had a responsibility to keep operating through the pandemic. And then we worked with our food safety lawyer, our environmental health officer, and figured out how we could safely and legally uh, keep operating in a way that was compliant with the COVID guidelines. And the main thing we did was we put lots of messaging in the app, explaining to people how to share safely. And the most important change was we implemented that everybody had to do what we called a no contact pickup. So that meant that you just pop the item outside just a few moments before the person who was due to arrive, um, due to pick it up, arrived. And we had kind of first two weeks, there was a dip of about 20% in sharing. And then from that moment onwards, it skyrocketed. And yes, you're absolutely correct. We sort of grew fivefold through the pandemic. And I think there were a number of reasons for that. You can sort of drag your mind back to the early days of the pandemic. And we saw all across the media, lots of photographs of empty supermarket shelves. And I think for many people, that was a real sort of, visceral gut punch of, of fear about access to food in a way that um, perhaps people hadn't had or some people mm. hadn't had before. And so that immediately led to an overnight increase in the value that people attached to food. And therefore, people didn't want to be throwing away food or other essential items. I think the other thing that happened is in a crisis, it's very instinctive to want to seek safety Uh, in numbers in your local community and so lots of people wanting to reach out to their local community and connect either to seek help or to give help we also found that because people were living and working from home uh, they sort of one had a lot more time at home and so did a lot of kind of Marie Kondoing sort of just decluttering en masse Uh, and but also it made the arranging of the pickup much easier because you weren't trying to fit it into those sort of two hours after work. Actually, it was a really nice way to kind of break up the day to get out of the house or to have some pop round to pick stuff up. And then finally, I think sort of the great pause that many people experienced during the pandemic really led people to reevaluate their lives, how they were living. And if you remember sort of in parallel, we had um, all these extremely adverse sort of weather events unfolding across the world, which I think for many people for the first time, really made the climate crisis feel very real, very immediate, very much on their own doorsteps. And that led to a step change in terms of how people were thinking about sustainability and doing their bit to help the climate crisis. So all of those things really created a bit of a a perfect storm for us. You cite there quite a couple of big roadblocks that could potentially be at the start of the pandemic, but yeah, the environmental um, side of things, the food, health and safety side of it. When you started this idea um, in 2015, there must have been so many points like that that would stop 
you know, 99.9% of people attempting something like it. How do you as a founder and alongside Sasha kind of just break through those? Because there's a, there's so many challenges to something like this. And I find it so inspiring that you've kind of just gone through those hoops every time uh, to get through it. But how do you have the mindset to do that? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I'm sort of I'm I'm smiling because uh, we are extremely stubborn, resilient, whatever whatever word you want to to choose. Um, for us personally, we are extremely driven and motivated and failure is just not an option for us due to our very deep sort of understanding and fear of the climate crisis and we know that if humanity is to stand any chance whatsoever of living in a 1.5 degree warmed world then we have to scale oleo we have to get to 1 billion oleoers by 2030 and i do think that is a real differentiator between what they refer to as mission-driven founders and mercenary founders. Olio isn't something that we're just kind of here to do and flip out of in a couple of years and have sort of earned our entrepreneurial stripes. We are here and committed to achieve that goal of a billion Olioers. And when sort of failure isn't an option, it does encourage you to think incredibly creatively, very laterally, um, and we are just constantly experimenting certainly in the early days i can remember having a massive sort of light bulb moment because i'd had a 20-year corporate career prior to joining olio and when you become fairly senior in a large corporate it's very much expected that you are you sort of own and know your domain you're considered sort of the expert and i realized at the beginning that actually when you start the entrepreneurial journey you know nothing, like 100% is unknown, your knowledge is zero, and it is your objective actually to embrace the fact that you don't know anything, but to set about learning as much as you can as quickly as possible. And so I think that that's a real learning and experimental mindset coupled with that uh, sort of fire in our belly that our mission gives us has enabled us to keep on going uh, despite the odds. How big can it go? You mentioned and touched on briefly there 1 billion oleoers uh, by 2030 because yeah. you have also just raised um in excess of 40 million which is mm -hmm. pretty extraordinary for something like this and also makes you the two most backed female founders in the uk as well which is also worth yeah. noting partly because you supersede rachel carroll who's been on the show before <laughs> yeah but talk us through what that money can do and how big you want to to go because of course one of the partners on that is octopus who work with us on this podcast i'll start with kind of where we want to go and then step back to what this raise does for us so we have that very clearly stated goal of a billion oleoers and it's fair to say that oleo started off as a food waste app and where we're going to is an app that completely reinvents how we live and consume because the current model of consumption is entirely broken. So we have, you know, sort of seven and a half billion people who, when they tend to consume, are generally buying stuff that has been ripped out of the planet thousands of miles away, shipped across the world, utilized for 5% of its useful life, tossed into landfill, and we're kind of rinse washing, repeating on that. And humanity is consuming the world's resources as if we have 1.75 planets, which 
clearly we don't. And so this mod model of what I refer to as virgin retail is no longer fit for purpose and cannot continue whether we like it or not. And what we need to move to is a brand new model of consumption, which is really about harnessing and, and fully utilizing the resources that already exist in our local communities. And so we are trying to build a world where when you want to consume, you will first and foremost think, well, what can I get for free that already exists, you know, that my neighbors are giving away? Or um, what can I borrow that my neighbors are not currently using? So a couple of weeks ago, we launched the ability for neighbors to lend and borrow everyday household items. And then when I do buy something brand new, then why not buy something that has been made locally with love? And that is the made section of the Olio app. So we're really connecting neighbors to really kind of reinvent how we consume, make it hyper-local and make it sustainable. And we're kind of building, I guess, you know, the rails of redistribution, if you like, of things in our local community to make sure that the world's precious resources are fully optimized. So that's sort of where we're going. In terms of this raise now, I think it's fair to say that Olio was early to market. We could see that the world needed was becoming more local. The world needs to become more sustainable, but we were definitely um, ahead of the market. Thankfully, we ran the business in an extremely lean way. So we managed to stay alive for the sort of five or six years that we were early to market. Um, and in that time, we've done a lot of experimentation, a lot of learning, we've built some great foundations. You know, we've got 5 million people now who have, who have joined Olio. We've had 34 million portions of food given away, 3 million non-food items, and we're growing really fast. And this round of fundraising is transformational for us because it will enable us to do a couple of things. So one, we're bringing in a whole level of C C-suite hires who have had experience of going through that scaling journey multiple times to kind of head up each of our functions and to work with myself, Sasha, and our founding team on that. Secondly, it's enabling us to unlock our Food Waste Heroes program. So that's where we're enabling businesses, you know, supermarkets and corporate canteens, et cetera, to have zero food waste locations. So with the race to net zero, businesses are reaching out to us in their droves now saying, I need to get to zero food waste locations. Can you help us? And so this raise is enabling us to really kind of staff up behind that and unlock that. And then the third thing the raise is doing is enabling us to start our international expansion in earnest, which is incredibly exciting. Yes. And so I want to ask about that because we are speaking on the day that you are launching in Singapore and Ireland. And yes. I've, A, it's interesting we're listening to in both those countries um, quite a bit. But <laughs> I, but so, but I was also intrigued because that is that's a real challenge. Like that, they are two pretty different cultures um, in terms yeah. of the way things go. And and so, how do you prepare to uh, launch simultaneously in places like that? So it's really interesting how we've approached international expansion, I think is a little bit sort of counter to some of the advice we've received, you know, strident advice we've received on our journey. So we actually made the Olio app available super early on back in 2016. I can remember to this day, extremely vividly, there's a big box in the app store that you can tick, which just says make available in all countries. Um, and I sort of ticked that and suddenly Olio was available internationally. Now, um, that's was a really good thing to do 
because prior to that moment in time, we were a UK headquartered business and we had envisaged that international expansion would probably take us to France or Germany first, mm. maybe the US. But through making the app available everywhere globally, we were able to follow the data and look at the markets in which we're seeing really strong organic traction. And so, you know, Singapore, for example, would, you know, if we'd had to write a list of 20 you know, markets we'd expand to, I'm not sure it would have been in that list. Similarly, kind of Mexico is another market that has been really amazing for us uh, organically so far. So um, that's, I think, sort of combining the data um, with the desk research and also the inbound sort of demand from international businesses as well has helped to form our international strategy. And then we have worked really closely on sort of the launch specifically. We've got an amazing PR agency called Transatlantic who have worked with us for the past couple of years in the UK on our PR. And we spent the past couple of months kind of setting up a global press office and finding the right local PR agencies to help us tell our story. And I'm really, really thrilled with uh, the progress that we've had so far. You know, kind of yesterday in Ireland, we had a full sweep of uh, all the major Irish newspapers and lots of Irish radio calls today as well. So a promising early start. Talk to us about a couple of the roles that you're hiring for. So in terms of, you know, we talk about jobs of the future, obviously a key part of the, of the podcast, you know, head of customer insights must yeah. focus on that data point a huge amount, I imagine. And also I just thought head of product design as well must be intriguing yeah. with a product that is moving so much at the time. Yes. So they are two critical roles that we are super excited for. So head of customer insights. And when you are a small startup, you know, many of the customers yourself uh, directly, you can, um, often if you're kind of building a product that's sort of for yourself, um, you feel like, you know, the customer very intimately, but as, as you start going through the journey that we're on, which is kind of crossing the chasm from that early adopter into the early mainstream, it's really important to recognize that actually customer doesn't necessarily sort of look and think like you. And so that head of customer insights role is absolutely critical to make sure that we've got really rich and granular and detailed insight into who our customers are, not just in the UK, but also in our, in our new markets and making sure that we're reflecting that appropriately throughout the organization and using that insight to help inform our product roadmap, for example, and prioritization. Um, and also helping to inform our, our marketing communications. So really, really excited for the head of customer insights. And then similarly, the head of product design role. To date, we've had sort of one designer working on the Olio app uh, who's been with us for kind of two or three years. You know, sort of prior to that, it was done, it was sort of part of a job of a developer. Um, but now we're sort of scaling out from one, one and a half squads to five, and we're going to have a team of five designers and we really need someone therefore who can kind of head up that product design function and really bring with us lots of expertise around kind of UX and UI and engagement and gamification, all those sorts of things that we need to bring into the Olio product experience to enable us to unlock the mainstream. So yeah, two really exciting hires. How do you think gamification will work? I'm intrigued by that because I think it's um, it's a space of the economy which is growing more and more. It is. So, you know, I can't remember what the stats are, but it's just like a crazy number. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of people uh, are, are gamers. And, and often when we talk about gamers, we think about kind of hardcore gamers, but actually the, 
there are so many more people who are perhaps more kind of casual gamers. But for me, gamification is about really helping to provide people with that uh, incentive and the fun of continuing to do something. And I think to date, a lot of gamification, quite frankly, has been harnessed by businesses that have not necessarily been that positive or additive to the world. And what we're really hoping for at Olio is to harness the power of gamification and behavioral psychology for positive ends, to get people sharing more and caring more and wasting less. Um, so it's an area that we are going to be continuing to invest in pretty deeply. And one of the big collaborations that you had early on as well with one of the largest UK companies, Tesco, I was fascinated yeah. to read about that because it shows where startups and corporates can work well in tandem together, which is not something that always happens. Can you talk us through a little bit about how that partnership came about and, and what it's meant? Yes, I um, I smile back fondly thinking of myself up at a sort of a food waste event in Coventry many, many years ago and sort of spotting someone from Tesco and also at the event and pouncing on them and describing this amazing app. Um, and I think at the time we had 10,000 uh, people using Olio. And to me, it was very obvious that Tesco needs to work with us. But um, I think it was distinctly less obvious <laughs> for them at that point in time. Um, we then spent sort of three and a half years building relationships with Tesco and in parallel building out our redistribution capabilities through the Food Waste Heroes program. So starting off with a couple of corner stores in Finsbury Park and Crouch End in North London, and then building that up to Planet Organic, which had seven stores across London, then unlocking Pret-a-Manger. And by that point in time, we'd also kind of built up sufficient credibility and expertise to be able to be a genuine partner to Tesco. And I have to say, it has been a, an amazing experience working with them. They are a true leader in the industry when it comes to reducing food waste. And, and the funny thing is that you spend sort of three and a half years just persisting, 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 and it all feels horribly slow. And then suddenly, when they decide they want to go, they want everything yesterday. Uh, and so then just you have to be able to switch gears incredibly quickly. And so we spent last year scaling out across their 2700 stores and getting them all added to the olio system so that they could have zero food waste locations well it's an amazing story and another part that i wanted to talk to you about of your journey was that you were you were remote working long before the pandemic remote working before yeah. it was cool if people think it's cool um <laughs> And yeah, so I'd love to have your thoughts and reflections on that because you've been doing it longer than almost anyone and how to make that work effectively as well. Yeah, we have. So remote working, we, we um, have been remote working since the founding of Olio. And for many, many years, it felt like our dirty little secret because we would try and tell everybody about this amazing way of working and nobody believed us. <laughs> they just could not wrap their heads around it. And in particular with investors, we just ended up stopping talking about it because it became a distraction and and they genuinely could not believe that it would that it was working it came about really very pra pragmatically because Sasha and I uh, both have young kids and we weren't based somewhere where we could easily commute to an office and we didn't have the money all the time or the desire to be commuting to an office especially when we knew there were tools that connected us to work perfectly efficiently and we um, quickly discovered the enormous benefits of being a remote first business, in particular in terms of attracting talent. 
So a lot of businesses lament the fact that they can't recruit for diversity in their organizations and it's hard to get female developers, et cetera, et cetera. The minute you release that constraint of they have to commute into an HQ in the middle of London, suddenly it opens up this incredible talent pool for you. And what we have found is that, you know, Daniel Pink talks about people wanting autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Um, to that sort of autonomy piece, people who work from home, and I think the really important thing is not to try and replicate the nine to five experience in the home environment. You need to embrace what is brilliant about the home environment and give people that real autonomy um, to work as they see fit. And so from day one, we have worked really, really hard. There's a couple of things I think are essential. So we recruit for not just mission fit, but mission obsession. And that's a really important unifying glue that makes the remote first working work well. And then we're also really, really anal about sort of management basics um, and, uh, you know, kind of weekly one-on-ones and exceptional communications and documentation and stuff like that. And we found it an incredibly effective model. I can imagine. Well, clearly so in, in the success that you've had. And as a, uh, as a final question, has there been a book that has particularly kind of inspired you on your journey that you'd like to share with people? There has. It's not a massively original one. So I'm sure many of your uh, readers, uh, sorry, listeners have probably read it, but it's The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. And that whole methodology of test, measure, learn, test, measure, learn, and do that loop as quickly as possible is something that we've certainly applied to Olio, but I've also increasingly been applying to my own personal life in terms of how I approach fitness and sleep and diet and, and all that kind of good stuff. So I highly recommend The Lean Startup. And for anyone who's wanting to find out more about the climate crisis, I highly recommend Naomi Klein's book, uh, Capitalism Versus the Climate. Fascinating. Two fantastic reads to finish on, which I'm sure will end up now on a few Christmas wish lists. <laughs> um, Tessa, thanks so much for coming on. Amazing. It would be great to do it um, perhaps in person uh, next year um, or a longer session at some point soon Fabulous. because your story is so inspiring. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode in the third series of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Word of mouth is everything in the audio world. So if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and send us to a friend. You can find us at Jimmy's Jobs on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. You can also check out our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co for our episode archive, blog posts and more. If you are a new listener, do look through our previous episodes. We've interviewed entrepreneurs disrupting industries from fintech to hospitality to modern engineering. So whatever sector you're interested in, there'll be something for you there. If you'd like to get in touch, please email us at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. Thanks to our producer, Leo Danchak, and thanks to George de Cleland for the artwork.